Hi, and welcome to the National Shooting Sports Foundation's new weekly podcast series, Gun Industry Speaks. As the trade association for the firearms and ammunition industry, we're often talked about in the news and on social media. But throughout this series, we'll be speaking for ourselves. We'll cover who we represent, what our goals are, and what we do to promote real solutions for safer communities. My name is Elizabeth McGuigan, and I'm the Director of Policy and Legislative Research for NSSF. I'm here with our president, Joe Bartosi. In our first episode, we covered who we are as the trade association for the firearms industry. If you missed it, we'd recommend starting there. And today, we are getting straight to our first policy issue, universal background checks and our fixed NICS initiative. But before we get into the current debate, let's take a step back for a second. Joe, can you tell us about the history of the background check system and the gun industry's position on it? Sure. Well, to start out with, the gun industry has supported and, and will support the National Instant Criminal Check System. In fact, it was the gun industry that lobbied for the instant system to begin with. Right. So we, we definitely want to do anything that will keep guns out of the wrong hands mm -hmm. while not infringing on the rights of law-abiding gun owners and purchasers. So there is that balance, and we support the, the, the system as it currently exists uh, to get that job done. Now, to go back and to give you a little bit of history on this mm -hmm. thing, the so-called Brady Bill, which ended up becoming the Brady Handgun Violence Protection Act, was passed in 1993. Started to go into effect in 94. Mm -hmm. the, the NICS, or National Instant Criminal Check System, didn't come into play until 1998. And once that happened in 98, that's when the Brady Act, as mm -hmm. it was then called, kind of became fully implemented, okay? And, the, and it really had the, 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 um, the concept was to require all federal licensed firearms retailers mm -hmm. uh, to run background checks on gun purchasers, right? Sounds like a very straightforward concept. Sure. Uh, they're not to sell handguns to anyone under 21 years of age, which is mm -hmm. the federal law, and they're not to sell long guns, rifles and shotguns, to yep. anyone under 18 years of age, which again is the current federal law. So to expand upon the NICS portion of it, which was really the, the key element to this right. bill, it's a computerized system designed to do instantly check multiple databases to give the retailer, the gun shop, the proceed, deny, or delay directive, right, with regard to that particular seller. Uh, and just a little bit of history on this, since 98, when NICS came in, there have been about 321 million checks. Wow run through that system. So it's a big system, right? It's a really big, sure. it's a real big database. And right now, at this moment, there are about 21 million records in the system. So there's 321 checks of a database that has about 21 million records. So again, it's quite a bit. And every day, there's 38,000 checks conducted by retailers, which again, is a, it's a staggering number. So the industry supports it. There's a lot of moving parts to it, but basically, um, it is the way to check databases or prospective purchasers. Okay, okay, that makes sense. So how does it work? Let's say I walk into a gun shop and I wanna make a purchase. How does the retailer go about doing this check? Of course, laws vary a little bit by state to mm -hmm. state, but the most basic form that you're going to get when you identify a firearm you wanna purchase is what's called a Form 4473. That's a form that the, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms publishes, and they update periodically, but basically, uh, it's the 4473, as we know it, the most current revision sure. uh, that, that the stores have. Uh, again, also some states have their own forms similar to that, but the 4473 is the most basic one. And that provides the buyer mm -hmm. and the seller, by the way, the opportunity to put down information about him or herself, mm -hmm. the type of firearm they want to purchase, and there's a series of questions 
that are designed to identify whether or not you are prohibited under federal law okay. from purchasing a firearm. Okay, once you fill out the paperwork and the dealer fills out their portion of the paperwork, they contact the NICS system. Mm -hmm. And again, that system searches databases which contain information on criminal history, if there's a protective order in place against this individual, are there any criminal warrants, immigration violation, that's also a prohibiting sure. factor. And there's also information in there from state and local officials on things like domestic battery mm -hmm. or any other state prohibitions against owning that farm. So all this is going on very, very quickly. And that's why it's called instant. It's within a matter of seconds. Sure. You're going to get either a proceed, which is the vast majority of, of these, um, the vast majority of responses come back as proceed. Mm -hmm. There are a small number of denies, which means you are prohibited in some factor, in some fashion that the database has uncovered something that would prohibit you from having a firearm. Right. Or what's called a delay, which means they want time, mm -hmm. three business days, to conduct further investigation into this. There may be certain similar names may right, have triggered right. a false positive or something that they're not quite sure they want a little more time to check. So it's mm -hmm. proceed, deny, or delay. So once you go through that, the you get a number mm -hmm. from the NICS system that you then they record on that 4473 form, right. and that's your record of saying, yes, we did the paperwork, we did the NICS, and here is our identifying number to, to make sure that, that was done correctly. Okay, that makes sense. Well, we will talk later to uh, a different episode about the those rare occasions when the check comes back as a delay determination, because that really deserves its own time, especially with a lot of the discussion about waiting periods and is the delay a long enough time. Um, but in general, we hear a lot about loopholes in the NICS system. How does this process work, for example, for online sales or if I'm at a gun show? Do I still have to go through the background check system? If you're a dealer and you're at a gun show exhibiting <coughs> your products, mm -hmm. you absolutely have to uh, undergo or subject that buyer to a background check. Whether okay. you're in the gun show itself, whether you're in the parking lot, whether you're in your own store, if you're a dealer and you're licensed by the ATF mm -hmm. to, to transact this type of business, you must conduct a background check. Okay. So how do we know that the dealers actually comply? You say they have to run a background check at a gun show or in the parking lot or you know, wherever they're selling. How do we know they, they really do that and they can't just sell a gun without running the check and kind of do it under the table, if you will? Well, besides the obvious issue of being criminally prosecuted, right. if you get caught for doing besides this, that, if you besides get caught, that, yeah. the ATF um, conducts audits of every federal firearms licensee. So every retail shop, every manufacturer undergoes audits by the ATF inspectors. They're called IOIs. They come in and they do an audit of your records. They check your books. They check your inventory. They check your paperwork. And from working with ATF, we find that where someone falls down is in the paperwork. Right. So there are real serious penalties for failing to conduct the paperwork transactions properly, which means the 4473s, the background check, the NICS number, and all that stuff, ATF's going to scrutinize that. Mm -hmm. And if you're found in violation, they can start a proceeding to revoke your license. That way is they will put you out of business. Right. So they could put you in jail, they could put you out of business, and there could also be um, uh, civil sanctions mm -hmm. in the form of, of um, uh, debarment, right. for example, from being in the industry uh, ever again. So there are a lot of downside risk for someone who was going to cheat uh, or not do their required role right. under this system. 
And I know through what I've learned through some of the compliance training that we offer to retailers to make sure they're in line with the record keeping and um, some of the compliance issues. Um, I learned that I know in uh, 2017, I believe, ATF conducted over 11,000 compliance inspections, um, which is a lot. And of those, only 40 of them resulted in a license revocation. So we know it's rare. It's less than half of 1% where you know, somebody messes up on their paperwork and loses their license because of it, right? So I think it's fair to say, is since 98, we've had a system in place that has these safeguards against noncompliance. Our businesses want to stay in business. That's, that's the point. How is it then, with all these safeguards and these compliance records that we see that are really strong, how does it happen that we've had all these high-profile incidents of somebody prohibited from owning a gun, walking to a gun shop, and making it through the process? And walking out with a gun they're not allowed to possess. Like, where's that breakdown? Well, let me let me just step back a, a second to, to address an earlier point you made. Yep. Um, it might be popular to believe that somehow the gun shop owners, mm -hmm. the, the firearms retailers, are somehow the problem. Right. But the numbers, as you say, 11,000 inspections, only 40 revocations, that's really good compliance. These folks who I've had the, the privilege of working with for many sure. years, they want to do the right thing. In fact, they're the first line of defense mm -hmm. from keeping a bad guy from getting a gun. When a bad guy walks into the store, those retailers are trained. Mm -hmm. Some of the programs that we, in fact, ourselves created, right. the industry created, to help the retailers, they're trained to identify suspicious behavior. Mm -hmm. They're trained to identify things that don't look right on the paperwork. So they're the first line of defense against these folks getting guns. So before we demonize these and folks, they we have know to remember, that, right? and they know <laughs> that. So they, and they take that responsibility very seriously. So I wanted to make sure that point is very well taken in that the retailers are the first line of defense. They want to do a good job. By and large, based on the numbers, we see they are doing a good mm -hmm. job. So despite the popular culture or myth, uh, that is simply not the case. As far as the next point, the how do we ensure that the background checks are good, yeah. um, what's very important to us is that the data in the system is accurate, it's complete, mm -hmm. and it's up to date. So some years ago, the NSSF got involved to look at the bigger picture of how retail transactions are occurring. And what we found was that even though there was incentives for states to put in disqualifying data, mm -hmm. mental health records, immigration, that things that right, into the right. system, many states were not. Mm -hmm. They were putting no records into the system, in fact. So when a person goes to a gun shop to buy a gun, the background check is conducted, there's gaps that the system doesn't know exists, right? They don't know mm -hmm. if there's a restraining order because the state didn't put the information in. Yeah. The Sutherland Springs case is a classic example. The Air Force had disqualifying information on this person, did not put it into the background check system. This person was able to go in and buy a gun. Right? So that's a, that's a real problem. So what we did was we went around state by state mm -hmm. and encouraged legislatures to enact what we call fixed NICs, right. which means get this information into the database. As a result, 16 states, 16 states now have those records in the system, mm -hmm. an increase of over 220% of new records in the system. That means retailers can now do a more complete job when the NICs check is done. And that's a, real, that's a real solution to a real world problem. Now, we're not done yet. There's more states to have sure, to get done. Right. 
The federal government last year, President Trump signed into law the Fix Nix Act. Mm -hmm. uh, again, our name, our program, we're very, very proud of it. We think it's going to save lives because it's going to make more meaningful background checks. Absolutely. No, that's a good point. And I, I'm a big fan of Fix Nix. It's something I've worked on personally as well. And we know that you know, you talk about the 16 states that we had victories in, and you know, we had identified 19 states at the end of 2012 that had fewer than 100 prohibiting mental health records, and 12 of them had fewer than 10. So when you say they weren't submitting records, they were not submitting records. And what we had to do and what our, what our team had to do was to go into these states and say, okay, where, where is the hole? You know, is it that the hospitals aren't talking to the law enforcement agency that submits the records? Is it that the courts aren't involved in the process? Who's out of the loop? And in some states, we had governors really step up and pull together groups of you know, the heads of their agencies and the regulators in their state. And they said, all right, you're on a task force, fix this. If it's an infrastructure problem, there are federal grants. We can work on this. We can build what we need to do to have our entities talk together and get the records into the system. So it's really, I mean, as you said, I know we continue to work on this today, but it's certainly you know, great strides with what we see as pretty little fanfare. And I think it's important to note that the federal government can't compel the states right. to put these records in, right? They have to use the carrot and stick approach. Exactly. They, you want a federal grant? Uh, you'll put these records in. Now, some states, that doesn't, that doesn't impress them. So right, I, right. But the government, the federal government cannot make them do this. That's mm -hmm. why getting to the states on a state-by-state -state effort and getting right. to do this was so, so critical. Right. And, you know, one thing that we do is kind of address the problems individually in the state. The issues that we have now in Wyoming aren't the same as the issues we had with, you know, Louisiana not submitting their records. Different states, different you know, technological infrastructure, different state regulations are the obstacles. So we really, you know, we've done the work to go in and address what's going on in each specific state, which is what we have to do to get this done. Right, and those 10 records you indicated earlier, those were nothing but tests. Exactly. Those were test records, they right. weren't even real cases. Those were right. just simply tests, so they right. were, the effect was, there was no effect, it was like doing nothing, um, which, is, which is a problem. Yeah, so you had prohibited people that could walk into a gun store and pass the background check. And have, it, and yes. that's the problem. Right, right. Um, and what we oppose is what many argue is another solution for keeping guns out of the wrong hands, universal background checks, as they call them. And before we get into our position, can you tell us a little bit about what universal background checks are, what that means as a concept? It's kind of a moving target because, because when people, politicians refer to these type of things mm -hmm. or, or lay people who don't, they just, it sounds like a great concept, well, universal background checks. Right. Every single transfer of a firearm from one individual to another would need to go through a licensed dealer mm -hmm. to enact the transfer to do the 4473 form we talked about and go through the NICS system. Right. That's in its most basic form what I believe the current state of the the background check, universal background check concept is. Yeah, it certainly is. And we know from government surveys that they do every few years, we know that 80% uh, of prison inmates obtain their guns through the black market, through family and friends, or through theft. They didn't walk into a retailer. And I'm sure that no one expects that gang members are gonna suddenly start complying with the law if something like universal background checks is enacted. Um, and they're not going to start running checks on each other if, if these laws, you know, are enacted. But beyond being ineffective at actually keeping guns out of criminals' hands, is there really any harm to just having the law in the books for those who do abide by the law? 
Well, again, to, 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 the first point is criminals aren't going to abide by this. Right. So again, we're we talking that. about we're talking about getting to the root cause. Mm -hmm. This is not addressing the root cause. Criminals right. aren't going to do it. They're not getting their guns from gun stores. So this is not this is not going to be effective mm -hmm. in its in its current form. Now, on the other side, you know, what's the harm? Well, you are creating an obstacle for law-abiding people right. to obtain firearms. Okay, under the Constitution, there's a right to obtain firearms, to keep and bear arms. So there's that. But even even more nuanced, perhaps, than that is in, in my background as an attorney and mm -hmm. working in product liability law, anyone who, any entity, mm -hmm. like a gun shop, for example, a distributor that takes possession of a firearm is now what's called in the chain of custody okay. for that firearm. So let's say you're in the chain of custody mm -hmm. and there's an accident with that firearm. The person who is injured gets to sue everybody in the chain of custody. No matter what you did and no matter what your transaction with that firearm was, you are liable to be sued under a product liability theory. So let's say you're, uh, now we're going to shift the roles a little bit. You're a private seller. I'm a private buyer. We go to Joe's gun shop to mm -hmm. do the transfer. You transfer the firearm to Joe. Joe transfers it to me. I go off and have an accident. Joe gets sued for a gun he didn't sell. Yeah. He simply transferred. It's just, it creates all of these unintended consequences that, again, they don't seem like a mountain out of a molehill. I don't want to make a mountain, sure, but, sure. but they're practical, real-world things right. that are going to cause litigation. They're going to cause delays. They're going to cause problems for people. What happens if the system crashes Incredible and checks, no background yeah. checks can be done? Just with volume of volume. checks alone. Yes. I mean, we hear that from Nick's all the time. They need more resources. We actively lobby to get them more resources. We want them to have enough staff to be able to run the checks and keep it an instant criminal background check system for sure. But like you said, with the volume increasing, if uh, you're going to you know, hand your buddy a gun while you go hunting and you have to do a background check on him before you do that, that kind of volume could really actually crash the system. Right, and I think the, the point is if, if, a, if a father wants to transfer a firearm to his daughter or, or mother to, right. to a daughter or to son, does that really require a background check? Is that really gonna make the community safer? Mm -hmm. No, I think, frankly, cracking down on criminal activity with firearms is gonna make the community safer. Exactly. Fixing the background system with the NICS uh, data mm -hmm. is gonna make the community safer, which is exactly what we're working on. One other point I want to bring up, which we hadn't really touched on, but is a practical matter is a concern with this system, is we are working, as we mentioned in the earlier podcast, with folks in suicide prevention. Right. People right. that are going through a crisis, we want them to have the ability to temporarily have someone care for their firearms. Sure, we encourage that. If we have to go through universal background checks, mm -hmm. that becomes a chilling effect on getting the guns out of someone who might be in distress at a critical point in their life. Right. That could be a problem to do that transfer, mm -hmm. which means that person is going to be left with his or her firearms, and that could create um, the a, a very sad consequence, right? So there's a lot, of, a lot of things that have to be really worked out here before we would support universal background checks. Right. The, <laughs> the one thing we hadn't mentioned was with, the, with universal background checks would require universal registration. Because right, how would right. they know if I sold my gun to you unless our guns were registered? And that, of course, is a non-starter for, for our industry and, and, frankly, most people in general. Registration has always historically led to confiscation. Sure. So we're not, we're not comfortable with that at all. The laws that we call universal background checks obviously have these unintended consequences. We never want to put barriers into people seeking mental health 
help in a crisis or to businesses successfully doing their business in a responsible manner like universal background checks would impose? What are better options that won't impose on the retailers or on law-abiding citizens but will help address the real gaps in the system? These put more burden for law-abiding gun owners. Right. You never hear them talk about the criminal. Hmm. They never blame the criminal for the criminal acts. Right. Right? So first thing that comes to mind is obviously we talk about fixed nicks, very yes. important program, but prosecute gun crimes to the fullest extent of the law. People that go into a gun shop and you lie on a 4473, you put false data, that's mm -hmm. a felony. Right. That is 10 years in prison. You know, you but you start prosecuting these people and it would be a deterrent to others, I believe. You know, I, I believe it would be a deterrent. So what's a better option? Get to the root cause, mm -hmm. which is the criminal gangs and drugs mm -hmm. in our community, and start looking at, at ways to dissuade them from this activity. Right, Make right. the cost of doing this type of business so high that they'll think twice. Right. So I think that might be a better option than erecting more barriers mm -hmm. to law-abiding people who have no intention of breaking the law and want to do the right thing. Right. Which makes sense, and we hope to see the states improve their prosecution efforts as well. But I wanted to thank you, Joe. So that's all of our time for today. But thank you, thank you all for listening, and please join us next week for another deep dive into the issues facing our communities today and how the gun industry is working for real solutions for safer communities. Mm -hmm.